Father, may that be our focus um, this morning, to think about Jesus, the wonder of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us, for making yourself known to us, for not staying silent, Father. You spoke, you're a speaking God, you're talkative, you've revealed yourself to us in your word. You could have given us the silent treatment, Father, it's what we deserved, but you come to talk to us. So as we come to your words in a few moments, may that profound reality, speaking God, touch our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James chapter 2. We're going to read the first seven verses, and I think as I am reflecting on what I, how I went this morning and what I've got before me, that will limit our focus really on maybe verse 1, but we will go to verse 8 next week, just so you are aware of that. I had prepared to speak on all of it, but, you know, the, the, the scriptures are rich. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you, sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I sometimes think as we choose what we're going to preach on that I'm choosing this because I think it will help the congregation. And as I study and read, it's like God says, no, no, Paul, this is for you. And you come to texts like this, and I don't think I was really ready for the penetrating power of the word of God in my life personally showing the areas of partiality and favoritism that so easily rise up in my own heart. What struck me, though, is I certainly never put it in the context of how it goes against my personal relationship with Jesus Christ or how showing favoritism goes against the whole strain of the Word of God, the exposition of the gospel or the word that we find um, in scripture, the character of God as he's revealed to us, the way that God wants us to carry ourselves. And so James has got us to the point as he continues to give us ways in which we can examine the genuineness of our faith. Because a couple of weeks ago we talked about how easy it is to be religious, to just have a, a faith that is external, that's all show, that really doesn't 
reflect a heart that has been changed and transformed, but it's just really for people to see. It's for our own benefit, for our own pride. But James wants to prod us and push us to keep examining ourselves to ensure that our faith is a living faith. And so he says, listen, how you avoid or how you endure trials and temptations is an indication of your faith. He says, how you um, respond to new birth in your life is an indication of the genuineness of your faith. How you respond to the word of God is an indication of the genuineness of your faith. Do you control your tongue? Do you care for those that are vulnerable in the world around you? Are you cautious and careful and mindful of your interactions with the world around you? These are indications of a genuine life-changing faith. And so James is continuing this strain of thought as he's um, talking about characteristics of the Father. We looked at the characteristics of the Father last week, that, that they are, uh, do we control our tongue? Do we care about the vulnerable? Um, are we mindful of our relationship with the world? And now he is going to talk about this characteristic of impartiality. And it's already picking up stuff that he's mentioned to. In verse 190, he, he says to the poor, I want the, the poor to boast in their exaltation, and I want the rich to boast in their humility or their humiliation. In other words, what he's saying is that we're all the same. That rich and poor alike come to God through Christ Jesus, all of us. And that those of us who are poor should be just ecstatic that God didn't pass us by. And those that are rich should be ecstatic that our pride and our, our contentment and our riches um, didn't blind us to finally see God knocking at our heart and saying, you need me. And so the playing field is leveled before God. And then he's probably picking up this theme of, being of caring for the vulnerable now as he comes in this particular section about partiality. He begins with an imperative. This is, I think, the 12th imperative now in the book of James. Uh, I think I said there's, there's more imperatives sort of perverse in James than any other book in the Bible. A, an imperative is a command. And so the command that he begins chapter 2 with is, don't be partial. Don't make distinctions between people based on external appearances. James will make his case in the first seven, eight verses without mentioning the word sin. But it will become very clear that partiality and favoritism is absolutely contrary to our faith and to the exposition of truth. But then when you come to verse 9, he makes no mistake when he says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. In other words, this isn't just sort of a, a light, well, you know, I've got to be careful how I think about people and, you know, if I show favoritism. James is saying, no, if, if you show favoritism, you're committing sin. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that this doesn't mean that all distinctions are erased. For example, it is good and right and biblical to honor the elderly. And in fact, the Bible would say that we are to defer to the elderly. And I don't think we would ever say to a young man on a bus, if an older person came on, uh, you don't need to get up, just let them stand. No, we would say, would you get up and let the elderly person sit down? We respect age. So James is not talking about that sort of um, favoritism. Same as uh, honoring those in authority over us. If we had a dignitary come to our service, there wouldn't be anything wrong with honoring them and, and making sure that there was a, uh, you know, a place that they could sit in safety. 
That is different than the sin that James is speaking about here. But let's make no mistake about it. James is talking about favoritism being sin. I broke the passage down in three ways, and I'll just briefly drop on, on the last two ways and then come back to the first way. But first of all, James states the prohibition very clearly. Don't show any favoritism. And then he puts it in a theological context. And we'll spend time talking about that theological context. But then he gives us an illustration in um, verses 2 to 4, which is a hypothetical illustration. And I think this reveals a little bit of James's pastoral heart. Actually, we see this woven throughout the, the section when he begins in verse 1. He says, my brothers. That's a generic term, my brothers and sisters. There's a pastoral gentleness about that. It's like he says, we need to gather around the dinner table. We've got to have a talk together. He could have been really harsh. He could have been very firm. But he, he begins by saying, my brothers and sisters. Let's, it's not right to show partiality. And then he comes to verses 2 to 4 where he gives this hypothetical illustration. And I think that is also a demonstration of his pastoral heart. Because I suspect that he had something that he was thinking of. I suspect there was a, a real instance or a circumstance or maybe a few circumstances or a trend that he had seen in one church or a couple churches. And, but rather than sort of put the nail on the head and, and say, um, Paul Hawks, I saw you. He says he makes this hypothetical situation so we can all sort of breathe easy, but we can't escape. And so he, he reveals this hypothetical situation about a rich man and a poor man coming in to assembly. I don't believe they're Christians um, because he says it's the rich that oppress you. It's the rich that take you into court. It's the rich that blaspheme your name. So he's just talking about two people that come into the church. And James is not saying that there's any sin in being rich or in being poor. That's not his point. His point is simply that our response to somebody who's rich or poor is what's at stake. He also would use in that illustration, he says, when they come into your assembly, you pay attention. That means you sort of lift up the face of them. You focus on one over against the other. Uh, it's like we almost would say you fall over yourselves to fawn over the obviously rich person and clearly ignore the poor person who has come into your midst. And he says, by doing that, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? Well, the answer is yes, you have. You've made distinctions among yourselves. And this is where it hits home because he says, and become judges with evil thoughts. There's three different words that James uses for evil in the book. This is the most intense. This carries with it viciousness. Um, wickedness, degenerateness. And so he says, have you not been vicious when you've made distinctions in your heart? between the rich and the poor. So he asks us, and I ask you, I won't, we won't ask for responses. But what kind of judgments do you make that are evil when you show favoritism? And then he goes to the application of it in verses 5 to 7, where he, now he exposes it sort of on two levels. The first level is uh, essentially a spiritual level. 
and he talks about their own experience of the gospel. Did you experience partiality with God when his saving grace came to you? Think about it. Think it through, he says. And then from verse 6b to the end, he puts it in realistic terms. He says, think, think about this. How is it that the rich in general treat the poor? And he lists the observations of the abuse of power and wealth to diminish the humanity of the poor. When he talks about rich and poor, understand that James is talking about what is generally true, not what is invariably true. That's important to keep that in our hearts and minds. So with those things stated, we come back then to verse 1. And in the few minutes that we've got left, I just want to unpack this a little bit for us. Because James is talking now about doing the word of God. And not just hearing the word of God. And verse 1 is a very difficult verse. And you can find the difficulty if you go, go and read different translations of the Bible. There's a number of issues that are created here that are hard to make sense of. And so rather than making distinctions, I want to give you both views, at least on one issue. Because I haven't decided in my own heart and mind what it is. So for instance, you can read the New International Version. And it will say, my brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, don't show any partiality. He's talking about their faith in Jesus. Believers, you who have believed in Jesus Christ, it's a subjective response to Christ. It's your, your subjective um, expression of faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what I'll start with. But the second way that um, people go with that particular word is the one we read today. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. That one's objective. It's the body of truth that we have. And so I haven't made up my mind yet. Is he, is he appealing to us as believers and our experience of the gospel? Or is he appealing to us as those who know the Bible and how it reveals God to us? I, I think it could be both. So let's unpack these just a little bit in our own thinking. What had they believed? Well, they had believed the gospel. The good news. The songs that we were singing today were gospel songs. They were songs about what Jesus has done for us. They were songs about the good news of the gospel. They were songs that articulated our experience of the saving work of God in our hearts and lives. The gracious um, condescension of God through Christ to us who gave up his position of glory his position of power his position of might and he came down to earth and he set his love upon us they had believed the good news they had received the the incredible um, offer of salvation that had been made to them in Jesus Christ they had believed in Jesus Christ and so James wants them to think about their reception of the gospel and their faith in Christ. I don't know if you've done that uh, recently, but, but as you do that, is there not a certain amount of humility that's involved in that? I, I have thought about this from time to time, and I'm astounded that God loved me. I wanted nothing to do with him. I was arrogant. I, 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 was, I was hopeless. I was lost. I was absolutely impoverished spiritually. 
I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was go- where I was going. I was filled with guilt and shame. I was not the kind of individual that anybody, if they saw my heart, would say, I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to have a relationship with him. I wasn't just externally a mess. I was internally a mess. And yet God in Christ loved me. And I can still remember the Sunday evening when I responded to the call of Christ. An impoverished 19-year-old who received the impartial love of God and made me his son. See, there's nothing that we have to boast in, is there, before the Lord? Can any of us say, well, I know why God saved me. He looked at my bank account. I know why God saved me. He looked at my address. I know why God saved me. He looked at the titles that are before and after my name. I know why God saved me. He just looked at my surname. There's none of that, is it, loved ones? That our experience of the gospel is that God, despite our poverty, set his love upon us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Or more succinctly even, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We were impoverished. We had nothing to offer. And yet God saved us. This is what James wants us to think about first. He he wants us to, to put our lives in the context of the gospel, in the context of God's saving work in our lives through Jesus Christ, to see, did God play favorites with you? And how could we ever imagine playing favorites with others? I was reading a book that I have by Sinclair Ferguson, and he said it so well, our experience of the gospel. When I was helpless, Christ died for me. When I was poor, he enriched me. When I was tainted by sin, he threw his arms around me. When I was unloved, he kissed me in his grace. When I was naked, he clothed me with his garments. When I was an orphan, he brought me to his father. When I had no friends, he gave me his family. When earth left me starving, he fed me bread from heaven. When nothing could satisfy my thirst, he gave me living water. When I was in darkness, he gave me the light of life. When I was lost, he found me. When I was a stranger, he took me in. When I was without hope, he gave me the hope of glory. When I had nothing to give him, he gave me everything. And when I die, he will let me live with him forever. Is that song that we sung, the choir sung? I might not be able to preach like Peter. I might not be able to pray like Paul. But you can tell the love of Jesus that he died for all. 
This is the gospel, loved ones. This is what James, as we sit around the table, before he sort of gets into the illustration, says, now, now think about your faith. It talks about the Bible that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they might not see the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. I think favoritism is one of his key blinding tools. So do you see what James is saying? You see what he's saying, loved ones? He's saying that the gospel is the antithesis of favoritism. How much more deeply the grace of God towards us in Christ needs to sink down into our thinking and our feeling and to our instinctive responses to others. That He says, God has chosen the poor of the world. God has chosen the poor of the world. Generally, not exclusively. You can read the Bible and find again and again and again examples of God's electing love on the rich. But predominantly, it's the poor that respond in faith because they are not reliant in any way on their riches. But God, James says, has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. And he says at the end in verse 7, he says, And they blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called. I don't know if, if that ever strikes you, but you're one of God's children. You bear his name, the name of Christ. You're a Christian. That's an honorable name. And all of us who have come to know uh, God through Christ Jesus bear that family name, Christian. I think, look at how the world misjudged Christ. And look at the danger that so many in the world are still in because they misjudge Christ. He who is the Lord of glory, as James says, the glorious one. We turn our back on him. We mock him. We reject him out of hand. So James says to us, as you process this sin of partiality, what's your experience of the gospel? God was impartial towards you. Thank God for that. But the second way of looking at this is as the writer or the translation before us, ESV says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a body of truth. It's, it's, the faith is what's contained in the scriptures. Jude would tell us to contend earnestly for the faith for the truth of the gospel, for the spoken word of God into our lives. And so what do the scriptures say about impartiality? What does the faith say about impartiality? Well, you find that James is highlighting another characteristic of our Father, of God. And what's the basis of his command, show no partiality? Well, that it's our, our God is impartial. We find this declared in a number of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the Bible declares God is impartial. He's impartial in his dealings with his creation. You and I are not naturally impartial. We are given to make distinctions. It's so easy for us to reflect on external characteristics and qualities in people at the expense of looking at the soul or at the person themselves. 
But God's not like this. Moses declared, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's great and mighty and an awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. The writer of Proverbs says these are also the sayings of the wise. Partiality is, in judging is not good. In another place, to show partiality is not good for a piece of bread a man will do wrong. I wonder if some of them who first read this went to the story of David. Do you remember the story of David in 1 Samuel 16 where the, the kingship is taken away from Saul and so um, God says to Samuel, okay, I want you to go and anoint. There's a new king in town. And so he says, I want you to go to the family of Jesse and go to Jesse's family and there I will show you who you ought to anoint. And so uh, Samuel goes and he finds Jesse's family and they gather around and uh, uh, they gather the boys together Jesse and his seven sons and uh, we read in verse 6 of uh, chapter 16 uh, Samuel looked on Eliab that's the oldest one and thought have you not become judges with evil thoughts Samuel thought to himself surely the Lord's anointed is before me and all of a sudden the Spirit of God tapped him on the shoulder and said not this one and so Jesse bought, brought his second son not this one third son, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, seventh son, not this one. And finally, Samuel says, do you have any more? And he says, well, I do have the youngest. He's kind of out in the fields. He's looking after the, the sheep. He says, well, go get him. And so they go get him and they bring him in. And immediately, the Spirit of God says to Samuel, this is the one. And this is the context of it. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, they would have known that. That's contained in the faith. God says to the people of Israel, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated. You can go to the book of Leviticus, particularly chapter 19, and Chapter 19 begins with, Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And then it describes the various ways in which we are to imitate the holiness of God in our relationships and the interactions with people around us. And then, then there's a certain section in chapter 19, which my Bible uh, has a uh, um, uh, sort of a heading over, which is not in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's in the English Bible. Um, you shall love the Lord your God. And this is one of the things that it says there. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. It goes both ways. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You come to the New Testament, and the experience of the growth of the new church was, uh, the, the new church was phenomenal. Originally, the gospel had just come to the Jews, and there had been a great turning of the Jews to the gospel as they heard about Jesus Christ and who he really was, their Messiah, and why he had died, and how God had raised him to the dead. And they began to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But Peter had gone to the Gentiles, and strangely enough, the Gentiles had had the same experience. They, too, had received the good news with broken hearts and repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so... Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, in anyone who fears him and does what is right, he's acceptable to him. And on and on and on we go. And so, the faith reveals to us the truth about the character and nature of God. He is impartial 
and about God's demand of us that we too be impartial in our dealings with one another. And so James, beautifully, before he gets into the nitty-gritty, and I'll leave the nitty-gritty to you on your own this week in your growth groups or just in the quietness of your own heart. But before he opens them up to the terrible sin of impartiality, he puts it in the amazing context of, think about your experience of the gospel. Think about the revelation contained in the faith. There is no place for favoritism or partiality amongst the people of God. He says there, those who hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. It's an incredible statement about our Christ. It's incredible to me even that James, who again has been raised in the same home as Jesus, he ran around with him. He probably beat him up a few times. They had meals together. You know, finally James came to the conclusion that this is just not my fleshly brother. This is the Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. He is the glory of God revealed in flesh. And so James says, if your experience is one of having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of the glory who showed no partiality to you, if your experience of reading the word of God is consistently that there is no partiality with God, then show no favoritism to anybody that may cross your path. Father, we come to you this morning, and I'm thankful for this personal reminder that favoritism undercuts the gospel. An attitude of favoritism uncuts our experience of the gospel and the revelation of who you are to us. Father, would you help us to look past external realities in people, to guard our hearts against making judgments with evil intentions? Every one of us knows exactly what that means, Father. Whether we're a young person in school or in high school, whether we're somebody that's moved into a new neighborhood or looking at moving into a neighborhood. Whether it's somebody looking for somebody to join our growth group or to serve alongside of us. All of us know what it is to contemplate making judgments with evil thoughts. Father, before we do that, as a corrective to that, take us back to the gospel. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that has been harmed by our partiality, we're soaring. And I pray, Father, that our error in sin might not block their way to Jesus Christ, who is absolutely impartial. And that they, whether rich or poor, may find your free grace, your rich grace given to any and all who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the invitations of Scripture. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No distinctions. 
simply come. Oh, will people come to you today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.